Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm James Allgood, one of today's co-hosts. I'm in product marketing for Ignite, a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of Biotech 2050 and one of today's co-hosts. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a platform that is solving the talent crisis across the life sciences industry by providing access to the world's best expertise in order to accelerate the development of new therapeutics. I'm excited to welcome Heike Kailhuk, the Chief Scientific Officer at Ribon Therapeutics. Thanks for joining us today, Heike. Thank you very much, Rahul and James, for having me tonight. So, Heike, to start off, we'd love to learn about the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, certainly. My accent will reveal that I'm from Germany originally. So I grew up actually behind the Iron Curtain in East Germany. The wall came down just in time for me when it mattered, right, when I entered high school. And that really opened up a lot of opportunities for me to, you know, have the education that I wanted. I always wanted to go into life sciences. I was drawn to the logic of math, physics, biology, and chemistry. And that's where I chose my career. I started my college at an East German university in Halle University and studied biochemistry. And that was, again, only possible after the wall had come down in 1989 in Germany. I really enjoyed that biochemistry, but did an internship with a lab in another city close by in Jena, which really brought me closer to from the test tube to the cell. So I learned cell biology and cell culture and, and working with cells there and decided to actually do my PhD in that lab, where I started working on signal transduction of SH2 domain containing phosphatases, so really kind of kinase phosphatase, hardcore signaling. And it was a lot of fun to do that and do my PhD in that. And while I was a PhD student at this university in Jena, I got to go to my first big conference in Keystone in Colorado right, uh, during the Keystone meetings. And I got to meet what would be my postdoctoral mentor there. It was actually quite you know, frightening in a way where at the poster session, you know, I hadn't put like the last pin into my poster. He came around and said, hey, can you walk me through my poster? And he was this big name in the industry and in the field that I was working in. And we talked and were, you know, going through the data. And it was a really fun discussion with him that really drew me to wanting to down the road work with him. And that's actually happened. So I packed my bags in 2000 and came to Boston and did a postdoc with him. Again, going further now from the cell culture into the mice was sort of the age of knockout mice at the time. And when, you know, generating knockout mice was really something that was hot and you could get good publications and papers out of it. And that's what I did. I generated several knockout mice. However, they didn't have all great phenotypes, so they were quite benign. While that was not great for my publication record, I learned a lot, right? And that's sort of maybe one theme throughout my career that uh, sometimes when things get hard, you actually learn more than when things go smooth sail. I got to work on really interesting stuff uh, in his lab then too. There were some mutations that came out to be associated with genetic disease associated with those enzymes that we were working in his lab. And so I had some really good biochemistry paper around these mutations, but which I got to publish. So after four years, I sort of had to make a decision whether or not I would go back to Germany to start my academic lab. I had actually a fellowship that would have given me the opportunity to do that, 
or I stay in the US and do an academic career here or do an industry career. And I chose to stay in the U.S., first of all, because I really liked how science was done in the U.S. and how quick scientific progress is being made. And then I chose an industry career because I wanted to have benefit or impact to healthcare quick and fast. And uh, I think that was the right decision for me. And I have not looked back ever since I've made that decision. I was lucky that in the lab, there was somebody that I knew who was friends with somebody who was hiring at EMD Serono, which at the time was only Serono Research Institute. And the premise of the job was to come in and really use the emerging RNAi technology at the time to do target validation and do some really cool and cutting edge stuff. And that's what we started at EMD Serono with a group of four and was really, really good time these two years that I spent there, not just to do that, but also to interact now with all these scientists that have done drug discovery for a long time. And I started to learn both for biologics, but also for small molecules, how it is done, how the sausage is made, so to say, to generate clinical candidates and to drive them into IND enabling studies. I then got recruited to the emerging Merck Boston site, so the American Merck, based on my experience in pharmacology and in breast cancer models that I had gained during my time at the Neil Lab when I was a postdoc, and also because, again, some mutual friends that recruited me there. And I spent at Merck Boston five years. And the great thing about Merck Boston was it was an emerging site. Merck had just consolidated all their oncology research to be located in Boston. And it almost had like a little biotech feel to it, even that it was embedded in the large Merck company. I Towards the mid of my tenure there, I got to be a project lead on the small molecule inhibitor program. And that was really fascinating for me to be kind of the party planner for a large team that is doing different things to interact with the clinical team because it was a phase one asset that we were working on at the time, MK22060 AKT inhibitor. And that really made me fall in love with this early clinical development space, the sort of translational space of what can we do in the lab? What can we learn in the lab to make sure that drug development in the clinic goes well, that we pick the right patients that we treat. So I really enjoyed doing this. However, then got to talk to a common friend again at a Christmas party where I met Vicky again, who I had briefly met at work, Vicky Rishano, CEO at Rivon. And she said, listen, you know, we have this company that we're building, Epizyme, and we are looking for people who are like you, who know how to lead projects. We have this product that we are wanting to move into IND enabling studies soon, and we need somebody with your expertise. And I didn't really look for a job at the time, but I interviewed anyways and couldn't forget how much fun and how I had uh, during the interview and how fast-paced, how great sort of this group was. I got to meet Kevin, who is my partner in crime here at Rivon as well. And we sort of, once I made the jump and joined the small biotech world, you know, really developed a Tazimatisat Tazveric story right, where he was the chemist who came up with the molecule. I was the biologist who developed all the initial preclinical biology. And as you know, uh, right now, Tasveric is an approved drug now, right? Uh, Cell biologists, cancer biologists dream come true to have something that you see something in the lab that works in patients. So when Vicky, Kevin, and I got together in sort of August 2015 to talk about what Vicky was approached about Ribon, we were like, hmm, PARP inhibitors. Why would you want to do that? Why would you work on an, another PARP inhibitor? There's already so many approved. 
But the science around what we were going to do at Rivon was completely different. What I hadn't realized and what I think Kevin or Vicky hadn't realized that there's this whole huge family behind POP1, which is the target of approved PARP inhibitors. So they are not really PARP inhibitors, they are POP1, 2 inhibitors. And when I read about the science a little bit, which was not much, right? So there was not a lot out there. It got me really interested from an evolutionary argument because the post-translational modification called ADP ribosylation is a very strong event in cellular biology and can change protein function quickly. And so I thought these guys, these enzymes, they got to play a role in disease. And there was a little bit of evidence there that they would. And we jumped in, all three of us at the same time, and started to build Ribon. And now we've you know, created a clinical program that is currently moving through those expansions. So where we're testing the hypothesis in cancer in which patients we're going to see the most activity. And then we're moving a second program into the clinic next year in inflammation, actually. So really excited what we've been able to do in six years through doing this and hoping to continue to push more novel mechanisms, more novel drugs into the clinic. Great. So you spent quite a bit of your career working on the development of therapeutics with novel biology and first-in-class small molecules. What has drawn you to those types of challenges and, you know, usually unchartered territory and and perhaps some of the complexity associated with that? Yeah. So as a postdoc, you always want to work on something novel, right? That gives you the big cell nature of science paper (laughs) that has the potential anyways, right? That's what I did in the knockout field at the time. Didn't sort of work out for me that way because the mice I generated didn't have a lot of phenotypes. So that, I think, feeling about doing something novel has always been with me as sort of wanting to break the ice on new uncharted territory to plow new fields, so to say. The other reason for me was that the way we treat cancer today really benefits only a subsection of patients where those patients that have driver mutations, such as the ALKs, the KRASs of the world, there's drugs that have moved into the clinic that are highly effective. And obviously the checkpoint inhibitors have been changing oncology and cancer treatment in a, an amazing way, right? So some of these patients have really long-term responses. However, often patients come off treatment and then some, they are de novo resistant to treatments that we have today. There's got to be different ways of attacking cancer. And that was always kind of my way of thinking. Is there something else in addition to what you know has been tried and true and maybe worked and didn't that we can do? And we did this at Epizyme with the histomethyltransferases, really, you know, with the epigenome and trying to change gene expression that way, which has led to the EZH2 inhibitor approval and hopefully other drugs down the road. The, the path is paved, so to say. But at Ribon, we are going after a completely new paradigm of uh, treating cancer, treating the stress dependency of this disease, where we take away cancer's ability to cope with stress. And and that's the premise of how we think cancer is being treated, which is fundamentally different of sort of going after driver mutations in cancer. And that's what I try to do and try to implement and see whether it works. Great. So tell me a little bit more about Ribon and what's on the horizon. Yeah, so we started Ribon working kind of on three 
targets, right? So when we started in 2015-16, we had this uh, family of enzymes, 17 enzymes in the PARP family. We had inhibitors for PARP1 and 2, and there was additional inhibitors for the tankerases that were explored, but that was pretty much it, right? So it was a blank canvas. So we filled that blank canvas out with not just assays, technologies to detect the ADP ribosylation moiety that's being catalyzed by the PARPs, but also with small molecule inhibitors, right, that are highly selective, potent, in vivo ready in many cases. So we have this toolbox now of inhibitors against the family that we can use and, and explore where they play a role in disease. So we prioritized early on at Ribon three monoparps that we wanted to work on. And that was interesting because the one that we started wasn't actually the one that ended up being our first program into the clinic. So PARP7 was one that we started kind of second or third. There was always a race, which is our second program between PARP7 and 14. And 7 made it. And what was known about PARP7 at the time was that it was a target of the aryl hydrocarbon receptor downstream of the AHR to regulate gene expression. You know, when you smoke, AHR gets induced, POP7 gets expressed, and it helps regulate the response to the toxins in your body. Same is true for downstream of ER and downstream of AR, so an estrogen receptor and androgen receptor. And that was pretty much it. There was nothing known in oncology. What happened in 2016, there was a paper from the viral field suggesting that PARP7 under the conditions of viral infection regulates a process called pattern recognition, which is an ancient pathway of how eukaryotic cells, or actually all cells, respond to viral infections. So to have DNA or RNA that's foreign to them in their cytosome. And cancer has that same problem, whereby due to the genomic instability, you have these nucleic acid species in the cytosol that would typically trigger two things. Cells that have that would arrest and cells send a danger signal out, the type 1 interferons to the immune system to eliminate these cells. So cancer has this evolutionary problem to overcome that pressure, that pressure, that stress induced by the nucleic acids sensing. And since the viral studies suggested to us POP7 could do that, could the break on this pattern recognition pathway we, we hypothesized that in cancer, we see the same thing. And that's exactly what we saw. And we generated a great story here, very novel, very sort of unexpected. We just recently published a story in Cancer Cell. It took us quite a while to be able to do that. Uh, the reviewers were very interrogating in a way where we needed to show them in many, many different ways that this was a PARP7 inhibitor effect and not something else because they almost couldn't believe it, right? So this is like, what, PARP7? This gene that's downstream of AHR, how does it do that, right? We are in the clinic with this program and have recently reported at ASCO that we see initial clinical activity with a PR and a breast cancer patient and then several long-term stable diseases. And furthermore, what is very gratifying to me as a preclinical scientist as well is that the same biological changes we saw in the preclinical tumor models we saw in patients, which is the infiltration of various immune subsets into the tumors upon treatment when we look at matched pair biopsies from patients. So this is currently being interrogated in an expansion cohort that's ongoing. So very excited to see the data reading out from that uh, in the coming months. Then we're also exploring checkpoint combo, which is the natural partner for this. We think there's super single agent activity potential, but also probably a good amount of checkpoint inhibitor synergy that we would be expecting. 
So what's next is we're moving our second program into the clinic. Uh, this is a POP14 inhibitor. We looked at POP14 quite a long time for the oncology as well, right? We, we built Ribon around oncology. We hired oncologists into the company and didn't generate data that would have convinced us to move it to the next stage, which would have been the IND enabling study. So we had this beautiful molecule that was drug-like development candidate, just hadn't found a home with it. And what we did is we said the biology that we think in, that plays a role in the oncology setting might play a role in other places. And we, together with a collaborator initially, but then by ourselves, put the molecule into an asthma model, a type 2 driven inflammation, highly steroid resistant model, dexamethasone doesn't work there. And so we saw really amazing, beautiful dose dependent activity in this model. And for that reason, now switched gears to uh, really explore this as a non-oncology asset. And that's going to be a personal challenge for me and learning. That's my next stretch to learn about drug discovery in this non-oncology realm. But I'm very excited to do that. And then we have, you know, several other things in our pipeline earlier that we have not publicly disclosed that we are working on. And beyond the PARPs, what we've done too is we've now ventured outside of the 17th PARP family and ventured into the NAD utilizing enzyme space. So PARPs use NAD, they split it to add ADP ribose onto proteins. NADases just split NAD to generate metabolites. And there were some really interesting enzymes that, that came to us from papers and from sort of disease biology that we felt we could probably prosecute with our library. And that was exactly the case. So we were able to very quickly identify molecules for those. So lots of things going on being in the clinic, but also moving the early pipeline forward at Ribon. Well, congratulations on the article. In fact, a lot of milestones at Ribon. Congrats on your new role, as well as your latest round of funding. So I guess I'm curious, what lessons have you learned from your fundraising rounds as the company has grown? So we had an amazing set of investors that believed in Ribon early on, right? So our Series A investors, especially the Column Group, they are you know, responsible for us being here today, right? For Ribon actually existing, because they called Vicky up and said, hey, we want to form the company. So an important lesson for me was to keep them engaged, keep them believing, right? That we are something to be worth keep investing in. And that's also what happened, right? So good communication to your board, good communication to your board members to make the decisions about how you spend your resources. The second learning I had is that funding new biology isn't easy, especially if you are in a field that nobody else is working on. So there's not a face recognition, right, to our targets because people are like, well, why is nobody else working on this? Something wrong with this, right? So what they go by then is data. And once you have clinical data, they want to see the clinical data because that trumps everything. So you have to time your funding when you raise again kind of really well with when your data feeds come out, right? And, And that was a big lesson for me that to optimize that is something that, you know, you have to just get right. Because investors will always say, well, you know, I'll wait, right? If it's not sort of a hot opportunity that everybody else is working on that's competitive, that has face recognition, they'll say, well, I'll wait for the data. So finding those investors that believe in you, right, has been actually a really cool exercise for us. And, you know, the new people, Paragon and MGV that just recently joined uh, Monashi as well, like our syndicate, it's just they 
kind of believe in us because, you know, they believe in the team. They see that we have track record and making drugs, bringing drugs to the market. But also something resonated to them about our biology, right? So about the mechanisms that we're working on. So in summary, I would say time your funding right with your data, especially if you're in a clinical company. It's very easy to sell the dream rather than the reality. <laughs> so that's something that we've seen with the sort of IPO explosion in the last two years. And really find those people that are investing into disruptive technologies, disruptive mechanisms, and they will support you. Great. Thanks for sharing that insight, Heike. I'm curious as a follow-up question, and for those folks that are R&D leaders or CSOs, the evolution of your thinking around the CSO's role in fundraising. Yeah. The CSO is typically a scientist, right? So they have trained, they've come through a PhD route or sort of the nerdy scientist type. Many CSO, I, I would, I guess, count myself under that category. So what I had to learn during the fundraising is how to package your data so that it's palatable, so that it is understandable in an easy way, because you are always your topic's biggest expert, right? And you think if somebody understands it in the way that you explain it, that's totally clear to you, well, resonate with them. That's not always the case. So the CSO has to increasingly be flexible in being really good in explaining the science in easy to understand way, package your story so that it can be comparable, palatable, and easy to understand. And sort of how to make slides to do that, how to, you know, even on Zoom pitch, right? So there's this whole new world that we're in today with the roadshow and IPOs now all being virtual, how to do that well and how to come over as confident that this is the story that you have to get into, even that nobody else is working on. That's a very tricky thing to do for the CSO of a company. And I've learned a lot doing that and I have evolved a lot doing that. Switching topics a bit, over the last few years, there's been a lot of conversation around the use of big data in mm -hmm. our sector. I'd love to hear your perspective on leveraging things like AI and ML now and what opportunities lie ahead to further validate the utility of big data as it relates to drug discovery. Yeah, I wish we had a better way to integrate you know, all the big data that we have today in a more meaningful way. And what I mean by that, I think in oncology, we've done a pretty good job in, you know, having TCGA and CCLE, all these databases to make sense of all the big data, but that just doesn't exist for other diseases, right? We maybe can do GWAS and FIWAS, but those data sets are, you know, hard to come by, very expensive to work with these databases. So how to do target prosecution selection in the non-oncology space is even harder. I found as we are moving in. I'm a big supporter of using mechanisms like AI to select targets, to go into, you know, large genetic data sets that we can interrogate for these non-oncology indications. I would say another great data set would be the databases that we in the industry have generated of stuff that works versus stuff that doesn't. So if we all could publish our failures, right, our failed experiments, in a more transparent way, I think it would save a lot of time and take a lot of time off the drug discovery process, which, as we all know, is very long. If a competitor with you knows that, you know, you've tried, say, your molecule in, in a model and didn't work, you know, how cool would that be to know that so that you don't have to spend the time and resources and then focus on something else? And is there a good way, a good think tank way to do that? 
that would be an activity that I'd like to be involved in to make that happen because I think it could help the whole industry. Yeah, you mentioned think tanks, and there are a couple of organizations that have mm-hmm. that have tried that. Perhaps in a in a smaller way, any suggestions that come to mind in terms of how two or three companies that are perhaps competitive can work together to de-risk development? Any such models that you've seen that you recommend? Yeah, I have not seen models that work. I know there was the big engine paper at one point that discussed that. And so I, I don't know what happened since then. Was have there really been some implementations made? based on that. So no concrete suggestions from my side yet, but if all the companies that have, for instance, anti-PD-1, PDL one assets, could they all kind of get together and publish a paper around the best use of checkpoint inhibitors from all their trials, right? So that you all could share a piece of knowledge that not just those companies would benefit from, but uh, everybody else who works in that biology as well. Great. Many of our recent guests have lamented about the war for talent. What are you seeing around hiring and especially when you're growing Ribon? What challenges are you seeing in that? Yeah, it's a blood sport. It really is right now. So you have to be very competitive, right? And often pay above Redford, which is what is using for a comparator, right? For the different levels. It's been very hard to hire, especially hire people that want to take the risk of a company like Rybon, right? We have hired an amazing team of people who came to Rybon by choice, meaning they didn't want to work on the fifth ALK inhibitor or the next anti-PD-1. They wanted to work on something new, right? So those kind of people will gravitate to each other. What I found and saw too is that often because there's such a war on talent, people come into opportunities, positions that they may not be ready for. They get hired at a level that is not supported by their years of experience, right? In my opinion, all the learnings that I had to do during my career set me up for what I am doing right now. And again, it's often the failures that you learn most of. I gave you an example earlier about my postdoc. I learned how to analyze mice in 15 different ways, right, to search for that phenotype. At Epizyme, we had uh, something happening where a preclinical experiments delayed the clinical development and how to solve that was, was something that we had to deal with. And we certainly had a lot of, you know, setbacks at Ribon. I told you the PARP-14 inhibitor program we placed on hold for a while until we found this space for it and inflammation. And just, you know, knowing what to do, how to react, right? And not get too stressed out about this comes just with time and experience. And that is something that I I tell young scientists who come into the field, you just got to put in your time, right? To make those experiences. It's something that you cannot easily learn from textbooks. And, you know, any sort of accelerations that we can do to make young scientists ready for this, I would be something, again, that I'd like to be involved in. One of the dreams that I have is at one point teach a drug development course at a university. They're starting to pop up here and there, but there are not many, right, where somebody from industry like me gets involved to have a curriculum allowed. So how do you, you know, do this? So from target validation to lead optimist to screening, lead ID, lead optimization, what sort of, how do you make decisions around this drug discovery process? It's just something you have to see, right, in order to know. And that's, you know, what I feel sometimes right now you get hired because you have a you know, PhD from Harvard and MIT, but you may not be ready for that part of the job. Great. 
So Heike, that's a perfect segue into our last question, which is, you know, given your broad experience from big pharma to early stage biotechs, now being a C-suite executive at a biotech, what's one piece of advice you would provide your younger self that comes to mind? Yeah, be brave, right? Don't be afraid of going into new areas that uh, you think are totally crazy, right? I often have to, when I grew up as a young scientist, I was you know, while I was always like to do the new things, I went often a little bit safe. So sometimes you need to break out of the realm of normality in order to make progress, right? And then the second advice is surround yourself with a great network. Drug discovery, it's a marathon and it's a group marathon, right? So where, where people work together and not just people within your company, people in your larger network that can give each other advice, work together to brainstorm to solve problems. Find your mentors. Mentors have been incredibly important during my career. I had several really amazing ones. And now I'm giving back and having several mentorships myself. So don't be afraid of stepping outside of the realm of normality in your science. And also surround yourself with a good network is the two things I feel passionate about as giving as advice. Well, Heike, on that note, thank you for sharing the Rybon story, your own personal journey and the insights you've gleaned along the way. Look forward to having you and your colleagues back on in the future as you make advancements on the important work that you're pursuing. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity, Rahul and James. It was a pleasure to talk to you today and really a great podcast. Really happy to be part of it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050pod. Again, that's Biotech2050pod. Until next time.